Welcome to uh, Bloomsbury Central Baptist Church and welcome to the first in the series that uh, Ecclesia is running of Creative Conversations. Um, I'm Simon Barrow. I'm the director of Ecclesia, which is a think tank that looks at how beliefs shape politics and vice versa. And we stand, like this church, within a broad dissenting tradition of Christianity. We promote justice and peace and action for change with people pushed to the margins. And we work with friends of different religious and non-religious uh, outlooks um, who believe in that kind of approach to policy and to social transformation. So that's who we are. We'd be delighted to be working with Bloomsbury Baptist, uh, where, which is one of our, our bases, along with the internet and Edinburgh, where I'm, I'm living. Um, we're delighted to be working with them in offering this series of creative conversations which have been made possible by the Seth Stevens bequest. So just before we, uh, we introduce our conversation partners, Simon Woodman, who's one of the ministers here, is going to come up and say something about Bloomsbury and Seth. Hello, yes, welcome to Bloomsbury Central Baptist Church. It's good to have you here. As Simon has said, I'm uh, another Simon. There, there are several Simons in the room tonight. <laughs> Uh, it's good to have you here. The ministers here are myself and Ruth, who's currently at the back on the sound desk, and Dawn, who's sat there in the middle. Uh, we are a church that has stood here in the centre of London seeking to provide an interface between contemporary issues and the Christian faith for about 170 years, give or take a little bit. And uh, the creative conversations that the Seth Stevens bequest, Seth was a member here for many years, uh, that his bequest has enabled to happen are very much in the tradition of this church wanting to take uh, issues that are relevant and highly topical and issues of faith and bring them together in ways that may be creative. Another area in which this church has taken a big stand, for example, has been around LGBT inclusion. And we're one of the very few Baptist churches to be registered for same-sex marriage. Uh, I just want to say this evening is being recorded, so if we get to open questions, just please be aware that what you're saying may well find its way onto the internet as a recording in due course. So with that said, I'm going to hand back to Simon and others as we move forward. Thank you. Thanks very much indeed, Simon. The other thing to say is I'd like to say a particular thank you to one person this evening, which is Virginia Moffat, who until recently, Virginia is now working for the NHS, but for two years have been the Chief Operating Officer for Ecclesia and has played a major role in setting up this series of conversations. They wouldn't be happening like a lot of other things that have happened in the life of Ecclesia over the past couple of years without her. So thank you very much, Virginia. Um, before handing over to... Pat Gaffney in the centre there, who's going to be our chair and facilitator for this evening. And Pat's the General Secretary of Pax Christi here in England for 26 years we were working out beforehand. Pat and I have known each other for most of that time. Um, that's part of the international, an, an international Catholic peace movement. Um, and Pat will uh, introduce uh, into the conversation uh, Moazem Beg, um, former prisoner at the notorious Guantanamo Bay, and also uh, Chris Cole, uh, coordinator of Drone Wars UK, who's also been in prison for peace activities. So she'll say a bit more about that. But in terms of the series, this is part of a series. Um, the next one is on, is the right to offend sacred? And then we're going to be looking in February um, with Rowan Williams and Professor Mona Siddiqui about transforming Christian-Muslim relations. We've got then a session on resetting the Middle East in the direction of hope. 
And um, the final one at this stage in the series, though it's likely to be expanded, is against hate, challenging Islamophobia and anti-Semitism. And um, I hope those who've been involved in various interfaith conversations will forgive me for saying this, because I have as well, but sometimes you get the impression that interfaith conversations are about sort of uh, nice exchanges between religious liberals who all agree together that if we were nicer to each other, the world would be a nicer place. That's a bit of a caricature, but it can happen like that. These are more challenging conversations about where people of faith, of different faith and of no religious faith, but, but good faith, you could say, are coming together and needing to find common ground to explore differences in the contexts of real human challenges and conflicts. And tonight's especially illustrates that faith and resistance to the war on terror. We've had a lot of interest in this from different quarters, including uh, we had a letter into the church from um, safety people at Camden Council and from CO15 um, counter-terrorism uh, police as well. And so if there's anyone there from either of those organizations, you're very welcome as part of this conversation to come and have a chat with us uh, afterwards. But it illustrates that there are some controversies around that. But where we want to start with these conversations is with people involved at the center of big issues. And that um, personal dimension, the connection between the personal and the political and the social is really central to that. So we're really looking forward to this conversation. It's going to start on the platform here, but then involve all of us. And so I hand over to Pat for that. Thank you, Simon. Well, it's lovely to be in this great venue, which is so welcoming and lends itself to a conversation just because of the physical style of the building, which I think is really lovely. So I think a great responsibility is on us tonight, being the first of the series. Um, but I think that what's ahead of us is going to be very rich and very informing. Just to introduce the format, um, I'll just do a very brief introduction in a moment. And then we have uh, a, an opportunity where I'm going to raise probably about six or seven questions that uh, I'll share with both Mozam and Chris. They'll have an opportunity to respond to those questions. And once we've had that conversation running for about 45 minutes, we're then going to open up the conversation and invite those of you who are here to offer your own questions to our two guests here. And we'll aim to finish the evening at about 8.30. So that's the kind of format that we've set out for the time. But just first of all, to set our scene for tonight. First quote. <clears throat> our war on terror begins with Al-Qaeda, but it doesn't end there. It will not end until every terrorist group of global reach has been found, stopped, and defeated. I'm sure a lot of you know the source of that. It was George Bush addressing the Congress in September 2001 one perspective on the beginning of this era. Another quote. In order to seek solutions to the unique and terrible world war in installments, which affect a large part of humankind, humanity needs to refurbish all the best available tools to help men and women of today fulfill their aspirations for justice and peace. That was Pope Francis addressing a conference that we helped to organize in Rome in April of this year, 15 years on. So here we sit, 
tonight coming to look at this issue of faith and resistance in a war on terror. And I just wanted to do my own little brainstorm about what war on terror conjures up for me, just to set the scene. And I think of the hundreds and thousands of people who have been victims of war and violence in that time, and the many more who have been displaced, displaced because of that violence. I think of the practice of extraordinary rendition. I think of the intrusive national security policies that have impacted on us. I think of Guantanamo Bay. I think of the fear and suspicion that's grown both within and between communities and between nations. I think of the lack of accountability that's present in our world. I think of the development of all the new military technologies in that 15 years. They're just some of the things that come to my mind. But tonight we want to hear more from our guests about their perspective on this war on terror, but in more depth from personal perspectives. So we have our two guests. We have Mozam, and Mozam's engagement in responding to wars began back in the 1990s, taking him first to Bosnia as part of a relief effort there, and then to Afghanistan to support community work in education and in water projects. In 2002, he was seized while in Pakistan and taken back to Afghanistan and held for nearly a year in the Basram Air Base, before then being moved on to Guantanamo Bay, where he was held mostly in solitary confinement for almost two years. In 2005, he was released without charge. These experiences have led him, as many of you will know, to write, to give talks, to become involved in advocacy work against such things as imprisonment without trial, torture on community relations. And in 2009, he undertook a speaking tour with the former Guantanamo Guard, a tour entitled Two Stories, Two Sides, rather, One Story. More recently, in 2014, Mozan was arrested and imprisoned for eight months under our anti-terror legislation and charged with, among other things, supplying a generator to Syrian rebels. The case collapsed and he was released when a verdict of not guilty was declared. And today, Mozan is now the outreach worker for CAGE, an organization that works to empower those communities that have been impacted by the war on terror, and he does that through advocacy, or the organization does it through advocacy and support and education work, and he lives in Birmingham with his family. Chris Cole began his work of digging into the causes of war back also in the early 1990s, researching on the arms trade, and in particular, digging into the work of British Aerospace Systems. He's worked professionally for faith and non-faith peace groups, the Fellowship of Reconciliation, the Campaign Against Arms Trade. His faith reflections and discernment as a Catholic Christian have led him to take the path of non-violent resistance and to challenge the preparations for war. And these actions have taken many forms. Fasts, civil disobedience, vigils and protests, and some of these activities have also taken him to be arrested, to go to court, 
and to be imprisoned on several occasions and also has caused his family to be impacted when goods were taken from their home. He's also continued his research work and in recent years the particular focus for Chris has been that of drone warfare. And this week his latest report was launched, out of sight, out of mind, out of control. Today, Chris is director of Drone Wars UK, and he lives with his family in Oxford. So, on to our questions. So, I'm going to begin. I'll, I'll ask the question, I'll, and then I'll ask Chris to respond first, and Mozan can pick up. So, our focus tonight is very much the context of this time we call the War on Terror. So, I'd like each of you to describe what that War on Terror means for you. So, as Pat said, that you know the, the phrase "the war on terror" or the global war on terror, as it used to be, uh, came, came from a speech uh, shortly after uh, the terror attacks of 9/11, and uh, you know is really about a militarized response to an act of terror, or rather, I think we should say very particularly certain acts of terror, because terror is per uh, perpetrated by in many different ways and by many different. Uh, parties. Uh, at the moment, for example, British bombs are being dropped by Saudi aircraft onto Yemeni villages and Yemeni children, and that isn't addressed in this global war on terror. It, rather, it's very much focused on what I think we would call jihadist or Islamist, and it'd be interesting to hear what Mozan has to say about maybe those phrases. Um, I think, you know, the speechwriter who, who wrote that speech for George Bush, Sure, he didn't write it himself. Um, kind of had in mind, I think, you know, there were these mass public campaigns in the U.S. You know, war on poverty, you know, the war on homelessness, the war on drugs, and obviously that was in his mind this kind of mass uh, public campaign. But it then, you know, has been quickly uh, focused on military autism, but then quickly kind of sp spread out into cultural focusing on cultural issues and political issues and and legal issues. Uh, and really, it's now most focused, uh, we were talking about this earlier, uh, how there is you know, a, a desire for great change in our world. You know, the, the kind of structures that dominate and divide us in our world, people want to address those and change those. But you're only allowed to address that in a kind of certain limited framework. You know, if you go beyond that uh, framework of, of how we can change our world, you get called an extremist or a terrorist. And one of the, thing, the difficulties I think that we're facing at the moment is that those words are becoming interchangeable. You know, if you're an extremist, you're almost a terrorist. You know, and the idea of violence incorporated in, 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 in terrorism is being dropped just, you know, for political extremism. And we're getting this idea of we must tackle non-violent terrorists as well. And I, th I think Pro um, Professor Paul Rogers, some of you will know his work, and he very much talks about lidism. You know, where, where, you know we, there are people who want to change the world, and we think in particular perhaps of the Arab Spring. But rather than responding to those global urges and impetus for, for global change in our world, democratically almost, it, you know, the lid is screwed down tighter. And that lid screwing down tighter is, I think, is what we can call the war on terrorism. And, and it's very interesting that we uh, trace the war on terrorism back to 9-11, to 
I'm sure most of us or all of us can probably remember where we were on 9-11. And I was with about 1,500 other people. Some of, some of you here may have been with us, where we were outside uh, the massive arms fair that was taking place that week in London, uh, the Docklands Arms Fair, which takes place every two years. And while it was something of a coincidence, I think, that the arms fair was taking place at the same time as that awful act of self-destructive violence. You know, there are real connections, I think, between, you know, the arms trade, uh, between, you know, this kind of cultural idea that our salvation and our security is in the ability to inflict death and destruction on others. That's a very okay, long thank answer. You. Thanks, Chris. And Mozam, your, how would you like to describe this phrase, war on terror, what's its meaning for you? <coughs> um, on the 16th of October um, this month, there will be a, a program on, um, on BBC Radio, on BBC4, on Storyville, and it's going to be called Mozambique Living the War on Terror. Um, and that's based on a film that was made just a, a, a few months ago called The Confession, and it's been showing around in, in, in uh, cinemas around this country. And essentially, it's for me, it's not just a, an abstract or something that I can describe based on research, that's something that I've, I've lived. I've lived a part of it. Um, my closest friend is a man called Shakir Amir, who was returned to Britain after having spent 14 years without charge or trial in Guantanamo. It's hard to describe when I'm talking about this that I'm not referring to a country in somewhere in Africa or Asia or South America, but he was a British resident who was taken to Guantanamo and held there against his will by our closest ally in the name of the war on terror. And building up and developing that place called Guantanamo Bay was all as a result of that war on terror. Um, Shakarama, when he returned after 14 years, was still the same man, but he'd changed a lot. He'd seen things that most people would, uh, would not even be able, be able to relate to. But the biggest thing that he saw, the biggest impact of the war on terror on him were his children. His children, at the time that he was incarcerated, uh, the eldest was three years old, the youngest hadn't even been born. Faris, who is his oldest or his youngest son, for the first time in his life in 2015, saw and began to appreciate as a teenager what it's like to have a father. That, for me, is what the war on terror has, has done. And if it's done that to somebody who lives here in London, in Battersea, then you can imagine what it's done to people who live in Iraq, Afghanistan, Pakistan, Syria, Egypt, Yemen, uh, and the whole Middle East that has been affected as a result of the various aspects of the war on terror. Whether it's the invasion of Iraq that happened as a result directly of a man who was captured in Afghanistan and tortured into giving a false confession that Al-Qaeda was working with Saddam Hussein on obtaining weapons of mass destruction, whether it's to do with the dodgy dossier, whether it's to do with the invasion that happened as a result of that, whether it's to do the, with the presence of Al-Qaeda that never existed in Iraq, that came 
into Iraq as a result of the invasion and then during various transformations after becoming Islamic State in Iraq, became Islamic State in Iraq and Sham and then eventually IS, the causal link is too clear to ignore and yet that's what we've done. And so the war on terror, as, as the, the statement said, that it didn't begin with Al-Qaeda, that it began with Al-Qaeda in 9-11 essentially, but it's not going to end. And how can it end that we've produced somehow, collectively, the whole world together, an organization that makes Al-Qaeda look tame? That's where we are today, in 2016. We've introduced more anti-terror legislation in this country than we did at the height of the IRA campaign in which 3,000 people were killed, including bombs right across this country. We have laws in which people have been convicted for writing poetry in the land of Shakespeare. We have people convicted for disseminating books or, and, write, uh, and distributing books that were written in the 12th century. We have now a prevent duty, it is a legal duty upon our public sector workers to report on somebody who may appear to be extremist. And how do we determine what an extremist is? Here's the irony. A refusal to accept the rule of law, i.e. not to detain people without charge or trial or to keep them tortured in a place where they have no access to justice. Um, no respect for democracy, like for example in Palestine where you had democratic elections, or in Algeria or in Egypt. No respect for democracy or a, uh, um, not understanding mutual respect for one another. So all of these things are somehow going to determine you to be an extremist. And yet who is trained for this? Our teachers who are trained to teach, our doctors who are trained to help us and to heal us. They were never trained to become uh, people who would spot an amorphous thing called extremism. And yet, that today is a legal duty upon our public sector workers. So we have gone from coming from a place where we understood that we should have recognized that wasn't, this wasn't supposed to be a war. The act committed by the terrorists on 9-11, for them may have been an act of war, but it was a police action that should have been dealt with according to a police action. Invading countries, and I can tell you another part of what this means to me. I was in Afghanistan when 9-11 happened. And I was there shortly afterwards when the American invasion began. And I saw the bombs that landed and I heard them and I felt them and I uh, saw the evacuations and the, and the panic. The effect of a daisy cutter, which is a 15-ton bomb, if you can imagine, creates, leaves a crater about half the depth of this room. And if you can imagine those bombs dropped in a series of carpet-style bombing, the numbers of dead were so many that nobody bothered counting. And to this day, if you were to add those killed in Iraq, Afghanistan, Syria, and beyond, it's countless. The number is countless because the dead don't count. And that's what the war of terror means to me. Well, both very powerful descriptions there, and I'd like to just move the discussion a little bit. And during this 15-year period, you've both been involved in different ways in challenging and resisting this war on terror um, in the different ways you've described it. 
And I would just like both of you to have a chance to talk a little bit a bit more about the ways in which you have been involved in this challenge, this resistance. What has that meant for you? And what have the consequences of that engagement been for you? So Chris, do you want to have a go? Yeah, thank you. Um, I mean, that's why I was kind of very pleased to be invited to, to speak at this, because it's very rare that we get to talk as a person of faith about these issues. Uh, I, I do a fair bit of speaking, but all, you know, tends to be speaking about the kind of militarism and, and, and what's happening about that. But, but you know, as a, as a Christian, you know, as a person of faith, um, uh, I kind of feel a kind of imp impetus to kind of respond to the call to be a peacemaker. I mean, I think that's what being a part of being a person of faith is about, is responding to the call to be a peacemaker. And for me, that means challenging the structures that divide and diminish us and alienate us as, as, a, as a human family. How can we be at peace if we're divided and diminished by these structures in the world? And for me, as a Christian, I kind of look to scriptures for uh, inspiration. And for me, one of the, the things that I try to emulate is the life of Jesus and how Jesus challenged those structures in his time. And for me, for my reading, that was about confrontation. Now, you know, as, you know, as, as people of a certain English culture, the idea of, of confrontation is a bit of an anathema. You know, we say sorry if we bump into somebody. You know, the idea of confronting people in our minds, that's to do with aggression and violence. But I don't mean confrontation in that way at all. I mean confrontation in the sense of to directly put in front of somebody, to, uh, to say, look, there are choices here. Or, or, you know, perhaps a better way to put it is to, say, to expose the choices that are being made. You know, in, in, in Scripture, we all know... Um, where Jesus heals the man with the withered hand, it, you know, and that was very much a challenge to those structures. So Jesus said to the, you know, what's good to do, what's lawful to do good or evil? And he did that, you know, in public, on the Sabbath, in the synagogue. And it's really charged. It's kind of like doing an anti-war action at the Cenotaph on Remembrance Sunday. You know, really confrontational. And Jesus was offering people the choice, you know, the old choice from Deuteronomy, you know, choose between life or death. And so for me, one of the ways that we try, that I try to make that choice and expose the choices that are being made in our world, because we often don't see them, is through civil disobedience, through non-violent direct action. Uh, I suppose the best example that we know of, and we've mentioned Martin Luther King here already today, but, you know, Rosa Parks' refusal to give up her seat uh, to a white man in 1955, that civil disobedience created the Montgomery bus boycott. You know, and people had literally had to choose whose side are you on? You know, the side of institutional racism, you know, that says this is just the way things are, this is just the way things will always be. Or, you know, to make a choice to say, well, things can be different. You know, we can have equality and justice and humanity, you know. So, I mean, the civil disobedience that I've been involved in has often been quite clumsy and hasn't produced, you know, those big choices. And we need to kind of discover, as a people of faith and as 
you know, people who want a better world. How can we expose those choices that are being made and that we can make a better choice in our world? So for me, it's been about, you know, challenging the arms trade, uh, you know, going into military factories and disrupting what's going on there, um, uh, going, in, you know, disrupting drone operations. Um, on the 10th anniversary of the, of the war with Martin, uh, five years ago, we um, poured fake blood on the grates of Downing Street and blockaded Downing Street to mark the 10th anniversary of the war uh, with a group of us. And we were arrested and they tried to put in an ASBO on us. That was one of the things. A 10-year ASBO to keep us out of Whitehall for 10 years. And so there are, you know, the, the powers do fight, that be fight back. We know that. You know, and so it involves imprisonment, as you mentioned, and courts, uh, and bailiffs, and um, injunctions, uh, and the house is, has been searched. I think we, we talked about earlier how you know that's hard. So the, you know, the, the, you know, for me as a person of faith, it's about trying to expose the choices that we make, and there is a response to that. Um, I think holding power to account, uh, seeking justice, seeking to empower those who have been targeted and disenfranchised and made disempowered as a result. Uh, I remember growing up as a, as a teenager, I was part of a street gang, which was a mix of young kids who fought off racism. We were black, we were Asian, we were even Irish amongst our group. But the focus then was the xenophobia that existed on everybody that was, that was foreign. It's now honed in onto a particular group for now. For now, it's the Muslims. I know in the past it's been other groups, other uh, groups that have been affected by various aspects. And we have to always find the bogeyman. And so there's two ways to respond to this. Either retreat into your shell, hide into your cloistered communities, seek... Um, protection there and don't venture out because it's, you feel safer or do the opposite and to reach out in events and forums like this where you can challenge and be challenged and this means you have to pay a price a very big personal price as you've understood the police will raid your house they'll raid your children they'll take your children's property away they will disperse them they will target you in the newspapers, in the media, in the press. You will have court cases against you. You'll have assets frozen. Your accounts will be closed. Your passport will be taken away. And if you, that's if you're the lucky one. Because the unlucky guy will be the one that gets droned, for example, or who gets um, imprisoned, or who gets, like Shakar Armour, 14 years without charge or trial. Uh, and so this is the cumulative experience of the community that's, that's happening on a day-to-day -day basis. One of my roles, and it's an important one, it's, it's one that I think Chris has alluded to, you, you pay a price. You don't fight for justice and expect that you're going to get away scot-free. I don't think that's been the experience of anybody that's fought for justice, whether it's Jesus, or whether it's the suffragettes, whether it's Martin Luther King, whether it's Malcolm X, everybody pays a big price. And only later generations recognize the importance of the role played by such people. I don't equate myself to any of those great people, um, but I look towards them, including Jesus, as an example. 
Um, I remember it was in Bagram, the Bagram detention facility, which was a very dark place. It was a place that I was, I'd been held in for a year in Afghanistan and prayed and asked, I can't wait to go to Guantanamo. Uh, I'd seen two people beaten to death by American soldiers with their hands tied over their heads to the top of a cage, being repeatedly punched and kicked. I um, was subjected to the sounds of a woman screaming in one of the rooms next door that I was told was my wife being tortured. I was threatened that if I wasn't going to cooperate with the Americans, I would be sent to either Egypt or to Syria to be further tortured. And during that whole period, um, I had imagined that it can't get any worse than this. And I also made sure that the Americans were fully aware, even though it was to my own detriment, because I wasn't in any situation where I had access to lawyers or to the law courts or anything. Everybody was involved in this. The FBI were present, the CIA were present, MI5 was present. The entire world's most powerful law enforcement intelligence agencies had, were my adversaries. But I told them in writing that no matter how long it takes, Whenever I get out from here, I will make sure that the world knows what you did to these men. And I'm not afraid for what happens. And it's not because I'm a, I'm a brave person. It's because I was afraid that um, they would do something far worse to me. And so when I did get released, I did start a process of seeking accountability and justice uh, from these organizations and individuals and that process hasn't ended to this day. The, uh, in that background detention facility, I remember, I received a message from, through the Red Cross and it was simply this. A child was born on the 27th of June, mother and baby well, that's it. That's how about I learned about the birth of my youngest son, who I never got to see until he was three years old, for the first time in mine and his life. And it was there that an American soldier, and he was a Southern Baptist, he said to me something that really resonated, and it resonates to me, with me to this day. And though I, I'm, a, I'm a Muslim, I, I believe in my faith, I'm, I'm, I love my faith, but he said something to me as a Southern Baptist. He said, people ask, oh Lord, why me? Why me? And he said to me, I say, Lord, why not me? And I've thought about that for such a long time as a person of faith. Because my faith fluctuated up and down as I was in all of those circumstances. And it fluctuated to the point sometimes that I didn't know whether my Islam was doing anything for me. And at other times I thought Islam is the only thing that's doing something for me. Uh, so that was a really important part. Something I've learned and a, a lesson I've taken away from there, and that is again part of, part of the resistance. Just in the way that Bobby Sands famously said, our revenge will be the laughter of our children. There's a Quranic verse that says, O you who believe, stand up as just witnesses for God, and do not allow your hatred or your animosity of a people to cause you to do them an injustice be just that is closer to God consciousness. In that vein, I remember and still hold dear those American soldiers and some interrogators who befriended me and showed me humanity 
in my time in solitary confinement when I expected none. And those people, some of them have visited me in my home uh, just a few weeks ago, literally last month, one came over, his name was Albert. The last time I saw him was in solitary confinement in Guantanamo, where he was my guardsman. He had come over to visit family in Doncaster and I invited him over to my house. He stayed in my house, he met with my children, including the young, young boy who'd been born without his father there. My wife cooked for him and he slept in my front room. And I told him, this time Albert, I have the key. <laughs> you articulated very well there the, the real vulnerability <coughs> of the price that people like yourself and Chris have paid for standing up to the war on terror, the violence, the war machine, the lack of human rights. And I'd just like to ask both of you for a minute to think about um, how your faith and your faith community may have played a role in sustaining you in your ongoing work for peace, for human rights, how it sustained you in different journeys over the last 15 years, how your personal faith commitment and your faith community, how has it sustained you, how has it informed you, how has it been there to encourage you in your Well, I mean, I think the one word that you used is very, very important, and that's community. Um, I mean, we are a community. We are a faith community. And our part of being a, a, a member of a particular faith, a Christian, part of being that is to support and encourage each other. And I've received loads of support. There are people sitting in this room who've done enormous amounts for me, and I you know, thank them for that. But it's also... I guess what I would call from our Christian tradition, you know, the witness of saints and martyrs, you know, not necessarily those who are, you know, officially labelled by the church, but those who have, you know, struggled with the same struggle that we struggle with, both around the world and, and through time, you know, in the past. And, you know, we learn from them and gain support from, how, from their journey and from their witness. And I, I think particularly uh, somebody that, that Pat introduced me to very much is somebody called Franz Jagerstarter, who was a, a German farmer who lived, a Catholic, who lived at the time of the Third Reich, of Na the rise of Nazism and Hitler. And he simply refused to fight. You know, he didn't fight. He would refuse to fight for Hitler. Um, and lots of people said to him, you know, what can you do? You're just one person. You know, everybody understands. We just have to go along with this. There's nothing we can do. You know, and his, his priest said that to him, and his bishop said that to him, and his friends said that to him. You know, you know, you're just getting yourself into trouble for no reason. You have to just go along with this, you know, and it will all be all right. And Fran said, no, we have to stand up. We have to speak for what is right, even if that costs us. Mozam's been talking about the cost. And he was eventually beheaded by the Nazis, and he didn't know, anybody would know about his story, but thankfully people got his story out, and he has been an inspiration to many, particularly around the idea of conscientious objection, and his story helped, really, internationally to gain recognition 
for people refusing to fight. And part of my story is uh, I uh, became involved with the, the Fellowship of Reconciliation, which is a Christian pacifist organization set up by conscientious objectors at the beginning of the First World War. A German and Christian conscientious objectors set up this organization together, and it's still in existence. And I was very lucky when I got involved in the organization in the early 80s to meet some of those conscientious objectors, even from the First World War, and to listen to them and hear their story. And their story inspired me and sustains us. And right around the world, you know, in different struggles around the world for justice, you know, that's what inspires and sustains us, I think, in our ongoing work. You had a lot of time alone and must have felt extremely isolated at different times in this last 15 years. What, what sustains you? What kind of community is there for you? Um, interestingly, my, my father, um, he passed away recently, just a few weeks ago. And he, unbeknownst to me, mounted a campaign while I was in, in Guantanamo for my release. And what he did was essentially as an ordinary person, an ordinary man fighting for justice for his son, was to create a series of people of faith and non, no faith and, and beyond who understood his struggle for justice, i.e. he wants justice for his son. If his son's committed a crime, take him to court. If he's not, he should be immediately released. That was his, his, his fight. And he showed me, I think, that the fight for justice is not exclusive to any one group or set of people. It's not exclusive to any faith or no faith. It's not exclusive to any, uh, any religion. They all um, believe in the concept of, nat of natural justice. Uh, and so for me, it was important to find support from within my faith community, and I readily got that. I, I still get a huge amount of support from them. But it was the extension of that um, support and learning to ally with groups of individuals and organizations who, just as you've said, admire the fight for justice. Um, there are numerous characters throughout history, throughout religious history, throughout the history of, of the Middle East and of Europe who, who come to mind. Um, but for me, this, this, again, it's another Quranic verse that was really important in helping to discover this part of my journey. And that is, O oh mankind, we have created you from a single male and a single female, and we made you into tribes and nations in order that you know one another, and the best of you in the sight of God is the one who is most conscious of him. And so again, uh, the notion of coming together, of knowing one another, of being, what is the God consciousness to me is, isn't simply about your personal relationship with the creator. It's actually about your relationship with people, your relationship in your ability to do them justice or injustice, I think was really an important facet for me. It was taught to me by my father he wasn't a particularly religious person, but he did impart those principles. Um, I'm learning now as I go on. I wasn't politicized particularly before Guantanamo. I was interested in aid work. I was interested in, in, in defending as well in Bosnia, for example. I'm, I'm not a pacifist, um, but I'm 
I understand the position of pacifists very, very well, and if there's anything I would lean towards, it would be that. Except for the fact that I also believe in the people, people's right to defend themselves from foreign occupation. Um, but it was this notion of justice for me that, that I think continues to resonate and has helped me to develop and look at other experiences of other groups of people around the world and become sympathetic to the, towards them in a way that I, I'd never understood before. In 2005, the war on terror had moved and was then uh, very deeply affecting the communities and people of Iraq. And four men, um, Norman Kemba, Tom Fox, uh, Hamid Sudan, and Jim Loney, went to Iraq as delegates with the Christian peacemaker teams. And they went there as a gesture of solidarity and to be with the Iraqi people and to explore what was happening to them. And there they were kidnapped and held for 118 days. And within that time, one of them, Tom Fox, was murdered. Um, this church was involved in many of the vigils that we held in Trafalgar Square during their time of um, imprisonment as part of our solidarity to them. I know that both Chris and Mozan were also involved in work towards their release. Um, and I just wondered, that particular action and all the um, media interest that was around it it generated a, a, a lot of um, interest. Did that create any new or different ways to help us engage with this war on terror in, in, a, in a different way? I just wonder if it, if it created any opportunities, opened different doors. Um. Yeah, I, I think their, their action of, um, of, of going uh, to Iraq to, to see and to listen and, and to try and offer, you know, a different vision of people around the globe that's, a, has one of, that's had a long and noble tradition, uh, you know, going back to, you know, to the Middle Ages, really. Um, and uh, was, was very important um, and, and still goes on, you know, to, but you know it's very difficult now. But people do still undertake these delegations. I remember it was actually Pat who rang me uh, when we heard, and it was a very shocking experience at the time, uh, very disturbing when that happened. And the vehemence of the press, I remember being, uh, you know, something I've never come across. Um, you know, I, I remember doing, you know, the day after he was kidnapped, they were. I was doing this live interview because you couldn't get off the phone from the press and saying, well, he's a spy. Is he, is he a spy? He must be a spy. You know, that's what they're saying. Yeah, and, you know, the danger that was putting the four of them in saying that was just horrific and frightening. And then that quickly changed to them from being spies to them being fools, you know. You know, how naive, how stupid of them. And, you know, the press and the, the world struggled to know how to... You know, categorize these people because it defied their preconceived ideas of what people do in war. And 
you know, so slowly, and Pat was very much instrumental in this, we, you know, the advice from the Foreign Office, I think, in all these times is to say nothing, be quiet, do nothing, you know, and we knew that wasn't a good thing at all. You know, they wanted us to be, just go away and let them handle it. So we started organising public vigils and reached out, you know, to people we could think of, and thank God, Mozem responded and spoke out, and Anis Al-Takriti and Abu Qatada and the Muslim Brotherhood, many around. And I think they're speaking out for Christian peacemakers, for peacemakers, uh, for people who try to make a difference. It's very important. And I think we, that we need to kind of speak together and, and support each other. It's very hard, I think, uh, to know how our communities can work together. We're all, you know, incredibly busy already with the work that we do. And, you know, um, so, you know, very, I think we very much need to um, build and, and strengthen that. The question is how we do that. Uh, I'm not sure I know particularly how. It would be interesting to hear what those are. Yes. Uh, I remember, I, I'd just recently been released from Guantanamo. Yourself, yes. um, and I'd just, just walked back to seeing a family that I hadn't seen for three years and thinking a child I'd never seen. Uh, and shortly afterwards, I, I, I did an interview with the BBC about something. The news of the British, well, not of Norman Kemba, but and the other hostages had broken. And I suggested, I think, or to, to, to um, somebody at, at the BBC, would you, do you think it would be appropriate for me to make an appeal? And the reason for me was simple. The hostages were dressed in orange suits. That's the first thing that came to my mind that they dressed them in orange suits. Why did they do that? I don't think that's how they dress Iraqi prisoners. No. This is, it was just fresh at the time. It was still, people were talking about the Guantanamo prisoners being dressed in those signature orange jumpsuits. So I made an appeal on, 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 on the BBC TV, which was then put onto the Arabic television, uh, in which I, I got, I made a phone call to all of the former Guantanamo prisoners. I said, would you be prepared to sign this statement in which all of us unanimously are calling for the release of these men. Uh, and they did. They, they didn't blink at it at all. So it was signed by all the British Guantanamo prisoners, and we made that appeal. Um, sadly, as you've said, that the, the American gentleman was, was, was executed. But the other three, including Norman and Hamid, uh, is it James? Yes. Were all released. Um, I still haven't got to meet Norman, but I've known what he's done in relation to Abu Qatada, he helped to um, assist in his bail application for when he was released for a short while. That was his reciprocation. Um, but also Hamid and James have both written to me um, very moving letters, uh, especially Hamid, in which he said that when he was in those orange suits himself, at that time, he said, I thought of you guys in Guantanamo. And I thought that was such a powerful thing for him to say, that you're, you don't know whether you're going to live or die the next day. You're, 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 one of your colleagues is being executed, and you're thinking about us in Guantanamo. And for, so for me, that was, again, these are these strands that you come across every now and then. We often are not able to discuss these things because we're, we're told that we are poles apart. But there are things that can bring us together in humanity, the likes of which um, are not allowed to happen enough. And there needs to be, in my view, so much more of that type of real engagement and not, as Simon was saying, um, just talk about being nice to one another because there will be things 
that we'll, we would say, I'm sure, that we disagree with based on our experiences and based upon our beliefs and so forth. But it's at the time of great difficulty, at the time when an act of inhumanity is being carried out against somebody, we must be able to come together despite, in spite of, or regardless of our religious beliefs. Okay. I'm going to make this the last one of this round. And it's a more personal question. Um, you, both, you both have children, and you've described the real, I can't imagine for yourself and other friends of yours what it must be like never to see your children for three years, 15 years. can't imagine it. But what I'd like to sort of tease out with both of you is how do you communicate today with your children about some of these very tough issues about human rights and what's going on, um, about war and the things that underpin it and how we're a part of that? Um, do you communicate with your children about these things? If so, how? Um, and how are we engaging the next generation to be guardians of justice and peace and human rights? Gosh, that's a big question. Um, yes, of course, um, Virginia, my wife, she's sitting in. Um, we both, of course, engage and, and talk to our children like everybody does about these, these large issues. Our, our children are teenagers. Uh, now and like all teenagers, they are, you know, making their own way and, and developing their own thoughts. Um, our, our three are, are quite involved in, in in politics, but you know they've long given up coming on demonstrations with us. For example, the last thing they want to do is come on. They they said they've done their lifetime of demonstrations in the first <laughs> ten years of their lives, um, but. I mean, you know, the, the work has in, does impact on them. Uh, you know, you know, their, their parents, are, one or their parents, is away. I mean, we, we took the decision, Virginia and I, that when I was when they were very small, that I you know I wouldn't risk prison for a while. Um, but yes, I've you know been in prison when, when they've been small, and and I think the thing that we said that they found the hardest was you know police coming and searching uh, the property and, and taking stuff away. Beth. You know, very much remembers um, you know not being able to hand in her homework once because the the homework was on the the computer that the police took away. Um, she says now she says it gave, gave her lots of credibility with her friends at the time. But uh, <laughs> um, it, you know, uh, so I mean, we engage them, and you know, these are our issues. We know that aren't going to be solved in our generation. You know, and we have to kind of teach our children about these kind of larger issues. They don't get it from the media, they don't get it at school, so we try to instill it in our, in our family. Um, this is really important for me to hear uh, because I, I don't often hear people who've gone through what you've gone through, um, and so I don't get that many people who, who can understand about what I'm talking about sometimes. Uh, but I, I just want to say this before I continue that these days it is easier to speak in a church about such matters than it is in a mosque. Bet, yeah. I'll tell you that absolutely clearly as a Muslim with, with hundreds of mosques around this country and a massive Muslim community. 
And I'd like to thank the Bloomsbury uh, Central Baptist Church for this because really uh, these issues are so relevant to us all and the absence of people from the Muslim community is only to our detriment, I'm afraid. Uh, but getting back to the issue of my, my children, they, um, I have, well, I did have, my eldest now is, is 20, 21, but there was a point when I had four teenagers, and I can tell you that that was harder than any incarceration I've ever had. <laughs> um, but in all seriousness, they, Guantanamo never politicized them. It wasn't Guantanamo, because they were all young at the time. The, their father was taken away from them, almost literally at gunpoint with a gun to my head, but they were, they were young. Only my eldest daughter was traumatized by that, who was around six. The others have become politicized to a degree. And that is precisely for the same reason um, that you were referring to, and that is the police came into their bedrooms. They took their um, iPods and phones and personal things and they were spread around. While the police were searching the home, they couldn't be there, so they were sent off to friends' homes and, and so forth, couldn't go to school, and it disrupted their lives. And they were innocent in all of this. They're completely innocent. So was their father, but that they were really innocent in terms of uh, all of this. So um, my son now is at university studying international relations and history to try to get his grip on uh, bigger world affairs. My, my daughter is, is, is uh, lecturing or doing a course in schools which teaches children about uh, capacity building. And the other two are in, uh, still in school. But they're very aware, not just about their father's story, but about the bigger story in this country, about the PREVENT program. They, they know what PREVENT means for them as students. They know the students, not suspects, tour that, that's been taking place in the country. know the resistance the students have put <coughs> a, against PREVENT the National Union of, of Teachers and beyond, and how they've reacted to being essentially spied upon by the state, and that's what they believe. So they are themselves formulating, without me asking them anything, they're formulating their own, uh, their own views. Um, are they getting radicalized? I don't know. I hope so, in the right way. Because even that word nowadays, mm. radicalization, means that you are an extremist. Extremist means that you're a terrorist. That's dangerous territory because that means the suffragettes and everybody who ever struggled for human rights was at some point or the other a terrorist. Thank you. That's so stimulating, um, your responses. I'm just going to suggest we have a couple of minutes of quiet because there's a lot to digest. And then we've got about 40 minutes to uh, allow another level of engagement and to hear from you what you'd like to tease out from Mozam and from Chris. So we'll just take a couple of minutes, just quiet, and then we'll begin. So I think we've got a roving mic, um, which is great. And what I'd like is to, if you want to ask a question, that's great, just indicate. And if you could just let us, just tell us your name. It's always nice to know who's in the room. And then if your question is for Chris or Mozam in particular, just say who you'd like. And, uh, and then we'll take it from there. So 
Thank you. You've been waiting. Thank you for this um, great event. My name is Hamid Cocker. I am from Afghanistan, and my question, I have two questions. I'll make it short is to uh, Mr. Muzam. Uh, the first question that I have is that you indicated, you actually said that you were in Afghanistan during the Taliban regime. And so I would like to ask you that um, under what visa you, you traveled to Afghanistan, and what was the travel, the purpose of your travel to Afghanistan? And um, because during that time, Afghanistan had no foreign organizations beside, besides some uh, terrorist organizations, i.e. Taliban, Al-Qaeda, and the Pakistani establishment, the ISI, that were sending people to basically massacre the innocent Afghans. So that's one question. The second question that I have for you is, you just stated that um, churches are welcoming, whereas in the mosque, we can't have this discussion. As a Muslim, I agree with you. And so my question to you is, this is because of democracy, because we live in a democratic country that gives us the right to uh, have a dialogue. Whereas under the Sharia law, we will not be uh, having this uh, dialogue. And uh, of course, it will be one view, and that will be the Sharia. And if you don't agree with it, then you're going to have no voice. You'll be executed. And as a Muslim, I can say this. And so my question is, would you, as a Muslim, as a, um, uh, someone who is seen by the Muslim community, respected by the Muslim community, would you say that we should um, basically sign a petition that Muslims of the UK will not vote for the Sharia law, not now, not in 10 years, not in 100 years? Thank you. Okay, so two points there. I think they're very clearly for Mozam. Um, yeah, so I was in Afghanistan in 2001. Uh, I went there with my wife and my kids uh, to work on a project to, to, to build a school in Kabul. And we built two schools and we helped to set them up, helped them to run them, and to build projects um, for building wells in some of the drought-stricken regions. And that's where we remained until the US-led invasion, where I had to evac evacuate with my family to Pakistan. So that was how I was doing there. In relation to your question about the Sharia, it's a really loaded question um, because you know and I know as a Muslim we all operate and implement the Sharia in our homes every single day. If you're a Muslim, you must be doing that. You know, the prayer, the fasting, and all of these things are part of the Sharia. Uh, if you're talking about should we sign something to say that the Sharia should never be implemented and so forth, I don't think any, anybody's ever ever advocated that it, it, no it's of course not this is Britain this, this is Britain there's no there's absolutely no need to do that because this is Britain we fled Sharia we came to live on the democratic um, rule of law not in the Sharia law otherwise I would have gone to Saudi Arabia, but then, of course, in Saudi Arabia, they would see me as a second-class or third-class citizen because I'm an Afghan and I'm from uh, Asia. And so I would say that, of course, every Muslim practices fast, prays, and goes to Hajj, everything. We do that. But uh, my question was that, let, of course, it's not going to happen because uh, in the UK, there are a lot of other non-Muslims as well, and they're in the majority. But... 
if say even if uh, uh, but for you to just say that um, you will sign that you will actually because you just said it that um, it's the churches that provides for talks like this not the mosques and so under the mosque which is the sharia law and sharia law has been the law of the of the country of the government that's what i meant thank you um First of all, the reason why these talks are not happening in mosques isn't because they don't want them. It's because they're too afraid. They're afraid of anti-terror legislation. They're afraid of being targeted in the Daily Mail. They're afraid of um, being targeted by anti-terrorism police. You know, even this event here, right here in the church, we had um, counter-terrorism police uh, wanting to speak with people before it happened. So that's part of where we're living now. It's how we're living now. We're living in a society even in Britain, even in this democratic state, where people can be detained without charge or trial. If you heard what I said earlier on, there have been 14 pieces of anti-terror legislation right here, right in Britain. And that is essentially what I'm talking about. I'm talking about Britain. I'm not talking about a, a foreign law. I'm not judging Britain by Sharia or by uh, the law of another land. I'm judging Britain by British law. I'm born and raised in this country, and that's what I'm concerned with primarily. And so what we're having here, what we're seeing here, is a deterioration, an erosion of our liberties that have been fought for by many people. Um, your, your question in relation to the Sharia, I have to say respectfully, is not relevant to where we are right now. As I said, the Sharia, the most abhorrent part, as it were, of the Sharia to most people, to my understanding, I'm not a religious scholar, is the crime and punishment aspect, the hudud. The Sharia itself is the law. So Sharia, as I said to you before, no Muslim can live without Sharia. No Muslim. He cannot be a Muslim without Sharia. You must have Sharia. The problem is the misconception that most people have, and I think you may add to this by saying, if you say, we reject the Sharia, you will essentially say, I reject Islam. You can't do that because what you're concerned with, you're talking about the Hudud, and the Hudud is the crime and punishment. The crime and the punishment, that aspect can never be applied in Britain. It will never happen. Okay. No, I'm going to open up. You can carry this conversation on, but I'd like to open up to other folk in the room. Yes. Hi there. My question is for Moazam. Did you say who? You just introduce yourself. Thank My you. name is Simon. Simon. Another Simon. <laughs> Three Simons. Simon says. <laughs> what do you want to say to LGBT Muslims? Nothing of anything in, in any particular way. I, just as I want, don't want to say anything to LGBT people. People, uh, we had we had LGBT people working with us in Cave. They produced really amazing reports uh, in relation to the war on terror. Um, in my view, as far as people, whatever their choices are, uh, we're living in a country where people are free to be whatever they want to be, and they're free to be whatever they want to be. I'm free to accept or to reject that point of view, uh, but it's not really a discussion I get into because my, uh, my expertise, and I'll tell you this one, if there was a LGBT plus person in Guantanamo, I would have been fighting for his rights just like for anybody else, but there weren't any. Um, so my experience has been this, that the targeting of me, people in my community, my children, my family and so forth, has been relentless, um, whereas LGBT people 
have received more rights now in recent times, those rights, as it were, for in de facto terms for the Muslim community have been eroded. And the constant targeting of us has pushed us and backed us into a corner where we are living in a state of fear. And I mean really a state of fear. Fear of the racists, fear of the extremists, fear of the police knocking on the door. Every time there's a knock on my door, I think it's the police. So do my children. So we are living in a state of fear. Uh, yes, the woman behind Virginia first, and then Virginia. Thank you. Uh, good evening, and thank you both for your speeches. Um, I have, my name is Zilal, and I have a question to you both regarding PREVENT. Um, I'm a school teacher, so I sit those uh, training sessions, and I've observed how uh, uh, teachers are slowly becoming desensitized to comments like, um, if you spot a student who used to wear Western clothes and suddenly puts on a hijab, then that's something you need to report. And um, for me, it's something I can't be desensitized to because I'm a, a, a hijab-wearing woman myself. And when I uh, challenged that in my school, uh, we, we were, you know, welcomed um, and told that we need to come up with specific um, ways to identify vulnerable students. Um, and I would like to help to come up with something less offensive. Um, so my question is, is there a way to identify a student who is um, being radicalized or somebody who's vulnerable without generalizing in, in the way they did in those training sessions? Thank you. I'll let Chris begin, yeah. give you a rest. Well, I mean, like most of them, I, I hate that word, radicalized, as though it's a bad thing. I've spent my life trying to be a radical, and I want my children mm -hmm. to be radical. You know, to be radical is to be a good thing. It used to be cool to be radical. Uh, and now it's, you know, to be threatened. So it's awful. But the other thing to say about Prevent, um, I mean, I, and I've read the recent report from Cage, which was terrific and, and is shocking as well, shocking. And, and we talked about children, and my understanding is that some children are now being taken out of their homes and away from their families and, and made to live in different cities. Can you imagine that's happening in our country today? You know, we kind of think of that as from, you know, uh, Stalin's Russia or something like that. It's awful. But I'm a kind of white, middle-aged, large male. You know, I've never come across Prevent. It's not aimed at me. It's not aimed at my children. It's aimed at one particular section of, of the community, and that's, that's abhorrent, I think. Uh, so we've just received, uh, re so released a report um, about the unscientific nature of the PREVENT uh, strategy, and particularly something called ERG22, which is extremism risk guidance that has been now dished out to public sector workers, uh, almost half a million of them. And that's based on a, a study carried out by two psychologists in British prisons who had asked questions of and had done a study with some Muslim prisoners, particularly in relation to those who've been convicted of terrorism. They took that study, identified 22 particular points at which a person may get radicalized, and then now have the government have dished that out across the country and made that into its risk extremism risk guidance. Now that is very dangerous because what you've done is taken people that have been convicted of particular crimes, 
and then use that blanketly across the community and say these are the these are the risk guidelines. And if you look at some of those guidelines, they're actually quite normal for teenagers. You know, uh, being troublesome, being confused, not knowing uh, which direction to go in. It's it's not just teenagers. I think I'm still confused. Um, so, how do you determine? Where do you get into this pre-crime space? This, you know, do you ever see the film Minority Report, where you try to figure out somehow, enter a world where you get to the place before the person commits the crime? Yeah, I know where to do that. I know where to do that. I know how to do this. Honestly, I do. But the government does not want to answer this question, and that is. When your security services said that the invasion of Iraq is going to increase the likelihood of extremism and terrorism in this country, why did you take no notes? What have you done about it as a result? You've made the problem, you want us, the victims, the survivors, to fix the problem. Okay, and, and we can try. We can try and find out some of those risk factors. How do we stop people? Well, you know, they've recently imprisoned a guy called Anjum Chowdhury. I'm not keen on imprisoning people of dissent. But what they could have done is take responsibility for the amount of airtime that he was given on the television. You can take responsibility for pushing people into a corner and saying, if you don't condemn, then therefore you must be part of the problem as well. And not trying to understand nuance, not recognizing that confused policy produce confused children. On the one hand, when Britain says that we're going to send in our planes to support the Libyan Mujahideen against Gaddafi, you're going to support the Mujahideen in Afghanistan against the Soviets. And these are jihadis, by the way, this new term, this new derogatory term. How come those jihadis are okay, but these jihadis are not? When you produce a confused policy, you're going to get confused children. So they need to come clean with some of this, and a lot of this needs education. And if our teachers aren't educated on this, then how are, we going to, how are our kids going to get educated? Did you just want to come back quickly on that? Sorry, just to follow up. I mean, I completely agree, but in a school context where things need to be spelled out for teachers, so for example, teachers are taught how to spot children who self-harm and they are given specific things to look out for and they see, they perceive prevent as a similar thing where they don't expect all teachers to have this political religious awareness like a Muslim teacher would be uh, because it's related to them. So they want some, like a, a, a list to get, a list of descriptions to give to the teachers. Um, is there such a list? Are you saying there's I, I, I nothing? Maybe, can I just ask you, as a teacher, using your common sense, what would you look for? Well, I suggested, I suggested instead of looking for physical descriptions or physical things, uh, appearances, uh, to, to just um, be aware of really extreme views. Um, that, that was my suggestion to our school, but I'm not sure what, you know, what would be advisable. I just want to give you some case examples you've probably heard of. Um, look, how, how do you do this? I know a guy called Mohammed Omar who's studying in university at Staffordshire University. He's studying terrorism. And so part of his course, he had to go and, and study a book, read a book on terrorism, which was part of his course. Somebody saw this Muslim guy with a beard reading a book on terrorism, and guess what they did? They reported him to the police. And there you go. You've got a young child at school who is unable to pronounce the word. And ask, ask any three-year-old if they can say cucumber properly. And if he said something like cucumber, cucumber, to the untrained ear, that sounds like cucumber. His mom must be making a cucumber at home. So he's referred to police. Um, another kid, he makes a drawing of a, of, a, of a cucumber. He's trying to cut a cucumber. And they think he's, that's a beheading. 
he, he's drawing a knife, somebody beheading somebody else. Where does intervention come? Where does common sense uh, come? Mm -hmm. and, and where does where do guidelines come in all of this? I think, I remember at school when you had kids who were, had problems at home, they had difficulties at home, you could tell everybody knew that there were things that they were suffering and it, it was resulted in the class. Um, and then teachers would make an intervention to safeguard it. But up until that happens, now what we, the problem, if you look at this, the statistics show in 2015 alone, 4,000 referrals were made to prevent. More than half of those were children at primary age. This has happened because the government has made it law. That's why we're here. And this is why people, so many people are against the prevent program. Mm -hmm. There are no guidelines. In my view, there are no fixed guidelines. If you start following that rule of fixed guidelines, what are you going to do when somebody comes across and he doesn't fit any of that pattern? Virginia, you've been waiting. Yeah, but, um, I wanted to make a comment, and then I had a question, and the comment follows from what you've just been saying, which is just a reflection that um, how privileged we are, those of us who are white Christians, um, who have what might be considered radical views but won't be treated like that. And I'm, I'm always conscious in these conversations about prevent how if my children talked about direct action at school, nobody would take, uh, take um, advantage of that. But if a Muslim child did, they're likely to be reported and that's not something that, that we want to work with. But my question is, um, one of the things I think that was really amazing about the Norman situation was the way that you and Annas and other people spoke out um, and you were able to reach those kidnappers and um, show them what the purposes and intents of the Christian peacemakers was. And I think that was a really powerful thing because it helped bring them home. And I think the government, by targeting people like you, are missing a trick because actually they should be working with you because you can actually get into places that they can't. And the only way we're going to bring peace is to have these awkward conversations in difficult places and use every method we could. We could. So I think the question to both of you is, how can we shift this conversation and and help the government, or, you know, the state to understand that in order to make peace, we need to, to walk in some complicated ways? How, how can we do that? I don't I don't know. I have an answer, but I just wondered. So walking in complicated ways in order to get to that vision and dream of peace, Chris. Gosh, <laughs> uh, I mean, I mean, it's very difficult. I mean, you know, we have to use our community. One of the things that you know, I spend a lot of my time in the kind of secular um, peace movement, you know, Stop the War, Campaign Against Arms, like CND, I think. And, you know, when I say to them, we come together once a week, all the people in our streets, we walk down to church and, you know, we meet people. To them, that's amazing. And we have this community, you know, in our mosques, in our, in our <laughs> churches, uh, everywhere, we, where we can offer a different vision. And lots of people don't have that. You know, they get their vision of the world from the Daily Mail, you know, and that's how, you know, I think that's a huge problem. I mean, all I'm saying is what the problem is rather than what the answer is, because I don't know. All I know is that we have to continue to struggle and continue events like this where we share and learn from each other outside of that way that we're taught through the Daily Mail and the BBC News and, and that stuff. Have you ever been invited into an arena or an environment that's completely beyond your normal one to be a kind of a witness or a spokesperson or something? Um, I mean, I, I sometimes get event, in, invited to kind of you know kind of military conferences and things like that, um, which is is, is uh, uh, 
yeah, and trying to talk a, 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 in a different way about peace and security is very um, uh, challenging in those uh, circumstances. Uh, I mean, one of the one of the things as a you know a Christian peacemaker, I was a director of a fellowship for, of reconciliation for a long time, and we tried to have some of these interfaith dialogues, particularly with Muslim uh, groups and organisations and, and and Muslims, and it was very difficult because there was no real um, biting point. There was no real something to do, except when I began much more secular work to talk about drones. You know, then I got invited to into mosque and to, and to talk to Muslims because that was something that was real. As Mosam said, you know, when we talk about something real, there is much more a chance of of dialogue. Yeah. Um, sorry, what were you asking? Yes, well, it's it's picking up uh, on Virginia's question there. Okay, yeah. Um, I, th I think that uh, we have to, as I said, work on things that are tangible. Um, you know, recently, I, I think I mentioned, when I was in Belmarsh prison, I'd been accused of, of, of supporting the Syrian rebels and so forth. One of the things that happened, I made an, I, I, I made an, I tried to make an appeal for the release of Alan Henning, who somebody I was working on his case to try to get him released before I was arrested. Again, the security services intervened, and I think they played a hand in preventing him from being uh, released in the way, or at least potentially released. Uh, they came to me in Belmarsh on a Sunday, pretended that there was, you know, it was healthcare, it wasn't, and um, they wanted to see me. They said, Mr. Beg, we'd like to talk to you about making an appeal, which I'd already offered to make an appeal on television from inside prison for him to be released, possibly. Um, in the end, they said, we don't want to do this because my trial was up in two weeks, and they know all of this was going to get exposed, that the British government had hindered my ability to try to call for his release. I'd already been, I'd gone to see senior ministers about his case before I was even arrested. Um, they left the prison in front of my, uh, my lawyer saying, Mr. Begg, we, we wish we had more people like you here. And I thought, what, in prison? <laughs> um, but what they meant was in, to have dialogue, to try to find a way that we can work together. The problem is that you can, they can say that behind closed doors because they know it makes sense. They can't say it when the Daily Mail's on your case, saying calling an extremist and a terrorist sympathizer, all those sorts of things. It's that populism that we need. That's, that's the difficulty. The most well-read papers in this country, sadly, are those rags. The Sun and the Daily Mail. What do we do about that as a society? It means education, but education means that we have to think more than necessary. And ignorance is bliss in most of this. And that's why this is always going to be an uphill struggle, I think. Uh, gentleman at the front waiting. <coughs> I'm Patrick, and I'm a Catholic, so my question is possibly to the Catholic Christians over here, but it um, relates to what Muslim said about why didn't the British authorities realise that by attacking Iraq they would be causing problems back here and radicalising people. It's interesting uh, that you say that it's easier to talk in a church than it is in a mosque, but my experience is that in our churches, our Catholic churches, we're more all about piety rather than radicalism. And very rarely in our churches, our mainstream Anglican Catholic churches, do you hear anything radical. It's just put down. So my question is, and you, you both work in, uh, operate in higher circles of the hierarchy than I do, is when do you think 
the Catholic Church and the Anglican Church will ditch the notion of a just war because the idea of um, doing something which is the, the lesser evil is obviously not worked in the, the recent past because we've had millions killed in Iraq and in Syria and in Libya, failed states all over the place. When are the Catholic authorities going to bite the bullet and say, no, we do not approve of war, we adopt a more pacifist approach, we take away our chaplains from the military and don't support militarism at all. Does that make sense or is that me just being beating a, I, a drum? I, I recognize what you're saying as a Catholic, yes. Thank you. <coughs> I'll just say a, little, a, a, a bit. Um, I think we're edging there. We're moving our hierarchy, those people who uh, form the teaching of our church, um, we're moving them slowly, but I think we were given a bit of a push this year. Um, both Chris and I happened to be part of facilitating a conference in Rome, which was about just this theme. How do we move our Catholic Church towards a commitment to gospel nonviolence and just peacemaking in such a way that our dependence on just war is no longer sustainable? Um, I think we made a lot of headway in that conference in that we got the backing of the Pontifical Council of Justice and Peace. They were completely behind us. I think we've got Francis, Pope Francis. Um, his message for World Peace Day in January next year is going to be non-violence, pathway to peace. I mean, he's taken on board. This is a new language that we need to be exploring and putting into practice. Um, I think the problem comes at, na at levels of national authority, for us as Catholics anyway. Uh, I think nationalism often takes over um, in our, even in our international environment of the Catholic Church. Uh, nationalism in terms of identity with the state or wanting to be recognized and accepted in the state creates a problem. So I think we need to, we, we need to encourage and empower our churches to feel free of that. And we really have to help our churches and our hierarchy understand what active nonviolence is about, what just peacemaking is about, so that from looking at conflict prevention to how we behave in times of conflict to post-conflict peace building, all of those are part of one package of peacemaking. If we put energy and time and resources into those, we won't need our just war. We're, we're edging there. We are edging there. Thanks very much, Carrie from Cambridge. Um, now I'm going to risk um, asking a question that... Um, well, it uh, may just sound you know, deeply foolish, but I'm the mother of five children, amongst other things, that I've done and do in my life. You know, hey, it took some time, but it wasn't the whole of my life. But I've got five children, and they're in their 20s. And what I see is that the rest of their life is going to be consumed, actually, with this global um, 
struggle for developing uh, people's rights and democracies, which needs to be playing out not only in the West, not only in the West, we make a big thing of what's going on in the West, but actually in Africa, across Asia, in the Middle East, where there are profound asymmetries, profound yeah. in terms of access to the basics that we expect. We just by default expect here. But you know, from your work, you were doing accessing clean water, um, uh, safety for people, uh, you know, the political process that's going on in Yemen, the political process that's going on in Somalia, or breaking down in Somalia. The political process that completely failed in Egypt and Syria for a range of reasons. But, you know, my view is we're going to be looking at, my children are going to be playing this one out. And I, I just want some reflection on that, really. I mean, because if you're saying you can have this sort of discussion in one or two churches, but we can't have it in our mosques, this is pretty bad news, seeing as many of these areas are actually Islamic areas that it are in a state of we want people wanting their freedom, people wanting access, either access to Western goods or a Western lifestyle, or in fact rejecting it and being told that they want something else. But you know, that's where it's all being played out. And we're really in the slipstream of, of what's happening now. So I'd like some discussion on that, please. Yeah, I mean, I, th I think, we, you know, the, the world is going through a, a, a period of uh, profound change and globalization. I think, you know, we look back to 9-11 as the moment of change. That's very much from a Western perspective. I think the advent of globalization, you know, will, in, in history, we'll look back and see this as having profound impact on, you know, society, culture and society. And that's going to work out in lots of conflict. There is going inevitably going to be conflict. Um, but that does that necessarily mean violence? Um, I don't know. We can have a discussion about that. As I've talked about the right to defend defend yourself, and you know, I I would agree with that. But I think that there is the question that you know that automatically that means violence. That means arms, and I, I'm not sure. Maybe that's maybe. Of course, yeah, 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 yeah. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. That's right. Well, I mean, when I, um, I mean, one of the things that you know has been in my life. I when I left school, I went to work for CAFOD, a development agency, with Pat, and I very quickly discovered that I didn't have any skills. Unlike most of them. I couldn't, you know, build a school. I couldn't develop water projects. And I learned that, you know, many of the problems, if you like, in our world aren't going to be fixed in, in Yemen or Saudi Arabia. They're here. They're roots of the structures that divide and diminishes are here. And it's here that people need to challenge those structures. And for me, one of those enormous structures is militarism. You know, because militarism is in part about keeping the elite, the elite, and the poor, poor. And so we have to work in solidarity with people making struggle in Yemen, in, in solidarity with people making struggle in Iraq, 
you know, for me, non-violently. For me, that's, that's an issue, is non-violently. But yeah, I don't have any super secret plan about how we bring the world to global peace and security. Thank God it's not my responsibility. That's God's responsibility. And we work in solidarity and hope and faith with, with God. That would be my response. Um, I agree that there are no short solutions because these problems have developed over over at least 100 years, if not more, since the, since the carving up of various states after the, um, the fall of the Ottoman Empire and so forth. We are still living as a result. Look at the look at the first Gulf War, Kuwait. Where did Kuwait come from? How old is Kuwait? How old is Lebanon? How old is uh, all those countries that have been made Jordan and so forth? There are communities, religions, races that have been literally divided with a ruler uh, on the map, and we are facing the consequences of that to this day. You've seen all of those countries that have been existed in the post-colonial period trying to find themselves. Who the hell are they? That on the one hand, they're told that it's all about democracy. But what happened to democracy when the, in Algeria in 1992, when the Islamic Salvation Front had, was poised to win the elections? Elections were canceled, and an ensuing civil war uh, happened in which over 250,000 people died. Why won't the promoters of democracy then coming on and say, no, democracy no matter what? What about in Palestine? What about in Egypt with the Brotherhood? So you see, even democracy, even democracy can only be tolerated if it suits our interests. If it doesn't suit our interests, we will ditch it like a bad habit. In Saudi Arabia, where's the democracy there? Yet there are closest friends. We lowered our flag half mast on all government buildings at the death of King Abdullah. We didn't do that at the death of of any Hamas leader, yet it's a democratically elected organization at the time. So there are a series of questions we have to really ask about what is it that we're exporting? What is it we're talking about? And in the end, all the talk about ethics and morals, and they are trumped by the statement of Lord Palmerston, which was in 1852, he said, we have no perpetual enemies and we have no eternal friends. Only our interests are perpetual and eternal, and that is what we shall pursue. And in the end, that's what it's going to be about. It will be about our interests. It won't be about trying to fix the world, because we really don't care about that. Oh, one at the back, and then one at the front, and then we'll make this the last question. So we'll start at the back, and we'll come back to you. I've got you. <clears throat> uh, I'd like to thank you both for fascinating um, answers to the questions. Uh, this is a question to both Moazam and Chris concerning um, your faith in relation to your experiences. And if you could perhaps talk about um, how your faith has strengthened you when you've been, when you felt like most under the cost, when the times have been most difficult for you. Um, and perhaps if you could, if you have any specific examples where um, that's been the case. Would you like to say who you are? You didn't. Sorry, my name's Daniel Wiesnitz. Thank you. So faith oh, sorry. and what's strength. I thought we were going to have a second question. <laughs> um, gosh, Dan, that was a difficult question. Um, I mean, I, I, you know, like Mozam said earlier on, you know, like most people, I think our relationship with our faith and with our God waxes and wanes. Um, 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 you know, 
and how we perceive our, our you know, God um, changes at different times. And I have had very inspiring, um, prayerful times when I've been, you know, in prison or I've been, you know, having great personal difficulties. And, and other times I kind of think, oh, you know, what's this all about? I don't understand. This is just nonsense. So, I mean, I kind of hesitate to say that I have any wonderful insights or any, you know, you know, my relationship with, with God and my faith is probably exactly the same as, as everybody else's. Um, I mean, I think, as I said, a little bit of, of what inspires me and, and, and I get my relationship with God is learning through other people um, and, you know, other wonderful people who've inspired me and, and taught me and I, I've learned from that. Sorry, that's... Um, yeah, I have to agree with Chris uh, also. The, the, there are numerous stories, I think even one that's it, it's synonymous in the Quran, Bible, and in the Torah. It's the story of Joseph being imprisoned for a crime that he doesn't commit. And then what happens at the end of that story is that he rises above everything. He rises above um, vengeance. He rises above all the things that, that was done to him. And he, he's placed in a position of power and forgiveness and, and humility and all of those things. Had he not gone through that test, he wouldn't be the person that he was. Um, for me, and I know for a lot of prisoners from the Muslim background, they love this story in the Quran. It's called Surat Yusuf, the story of Yusuf. Um, and it's told as a story from the beginning to the end, which, which in the Quran doesn't happen with, with many stories. Uh, th there's this famous saying of a Muslim scholar. He said that, uh, what can my enemies do with me? For my paradise and my garden are in my chest. Wherever they go, they do not part from me. So imprisoning me is time for solitude with my Lord. Killing me is martyrdom. And throwing me out of my home and expelling me is tourism. And so I think that's an attitude that exists. Um, and it, remembering that saying for me in prison was really important because at the time of a, of a spiritual low, I felt that that's it, you know, I'm never going to see my family ever again. And you have to imagine in a place like Guantanamo, everything is unfamiliar. The smell in the air, the food that they bring you, the clothing that you're made to wear, the soldiers, the accents, um, absolutely everything. So for me, again, as a Muslim, seeing that Quran, that it, it's the same words, the same letters, the same syllables that I used to read as a child, and who may, I may not have understood at that time, but now as I've grown up, I've learned the Arabic language, I've understood what I was reading, and for me, the words had a new resonance, a new, new meaning, and every time my faith descended, which happened often, um, I'd sometimes read those verses about Joseph and, and beyond and pick myself up. And often it was a Christian, a Baptist, who'd come along and remind me of my faith. Sometimes, you know, a, 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 I remember once, a, I think it was an evangelist or something, he came along and he said to me, why have I not seen you praying for the past couple of days? And for me, as a Muslim, I'm required to pray five times a day. And that's what woke me up. I said, oh my goodness, have I fallen that low? And for me, the prayer is just my communication with God. It's praising Him and using that as an opportunity to ask Him to alleviate um, the suffering. So for me, faith was important, um, but people were important too. We'll make this the last question. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, my name's Dawn. I'm the community minister here at Bloomsbury. Um, and 
often when we have conversations, we will talk about what one thing are we going to do differently tomorrow. And I've been reflecting, listening to the conversations that we've been having this evening and thinking about, well, what do I do with this tomorrow? And for me, change comes about through relationship and through conversation. And we've talked a lot and this evening, um, which is fantastic, but I'm wondering how I frame my conversations with my friends, with my family, in um, like how we do it in the classroom or the staff room or at the gym. When we talked earlier, you, you mentioned earlier about the fact that we, we, we label terrorists, but actually acts of terror are being perpetrated by, like, by, by our government, by other sort of movements. Um, and I'm just wondering, is it helpful to, to kind of move a conversation and to highlight those things and almost say, look, our, our governments are doing acts of terrorism too? Or is it helpful to try and lose all of those labels and move on? Like, how do we frame our conversations with the people around us? Well, I mean, the, the thing that I would say, maybe try to say, but the thing to say is to have conversations. You know, personally, you know, I've been involved in lots of things about the theory of change. How does change happen? And for me, change doesn't come from people reading books, from speeches. Uh, it comes from conversations because, you know, people can really have a, a discussion. And I remember, one of the things I remember very, very well um, shocked me when I was younger. I was in, you know, a young teenager. And, you know, there was this thing about Irish, Irish jokes. You know, every, if you remember, those of us of a certain age will remember, you know. And somebody said to me, you shouldn't make jokes about Irish people, you know, because of this. It was just a little thing. And that shook me, and that really reached me, and that changed me in a way that other, you know, grand theses or um, programs, and I think conversations and challenging people's prejudices and perceptions in conversation is so important. You know, um, think about things in this in these terms. The way where we are today, 2016, we think we've advanced so much in terms of our laws and our regulations and our ideas and so forth, the technology. I believe if Malcolm X was alive today, he would not be allowed into the country or to give speeches in the universities, as he did in Oxford, in the Oxford Union. I believe if Gandhi was around today, uh, there would be problems for him coming to the airport. He was regarded as an extremist. Um, more importantly, according to the laws that exist today, if Nelson Mandela had applied to this country, to come to this country, and believed what he believed in the time that he was in prison, <coughs> I don't think he'd be allowed in the country either. And I don't think neither uh, either would uh, Muhammad Ali, at the time in which he rejected the war, he wouldn't be allowed in either. That's where we're at today. Nelson Mandela is arguably one of the most well-known people and respected people in the world. Yet, we need to remind people that he was convicted for terrorism and spent 25 years as a result in prison after being abused and tortured. So the most respected man in the world, arguably, is a convicted terrorist. So we can do away with these stupid labels. And as far as Gandhi and everybody else and Malcolm X, they were all regarded as extremists and radicals and everything. So what do you do with these people? And do we celebrate them as we have statues of them outside Parliament, of Gandhi and Mandela, and, and the hypocrisy, and expose it? Um, and do we come along and say, actually, I say I echo his sentiments, I echo their sentiments? 
And if so, you know when, you know when I was arrested, by the way, when I was arrested this last time, they seized several things from my home, including my copy of the autobiography of Malcolm X. So it shows you where, how far we've reg regressed. And um, so you're right, we need to change that conversation and the language. Thank you. Thank you very much. Simon, are you going to wrap up? Well, I am. Uh, I mean, it's always inadequate to say thank you when people have been involved in such a deep conversation about not just global events, but their personal experience as well, and their experiences as people of faith. But um, I've hugely appreciated that, I'm sure we all have, and also for the participation of all of us, and for the, the questions, including the very challenging questions that need to continue to be put, and that we need to find the space to be able to talk about. So it's been a, a remarkable evening. You will be able to listen to it again um, on, on a podcast that will be made available both on the Bloomsbury site and on the Ecclesia one. So I've just got a couple more things to say, but the first thing I want to say is thank you to everyone involved, but particularly to, to Pat and to Murazem and to Chris. Thank you. Okay, what, what would a meeting be but, but, the, but with the announcements afterwards? Do feel free to hang on for a bit and to, and to chat. We'd like to be uh, out around nine if we could be because the people who staff this place, both staff and volunteers, work very hard and work, have very long days, so we want to honour that. The second thing to say is um, I've already thanked Virginia for her role in putting this uh, programme of creative conversations together. I should also... It's, uh, remiss of me not also to thank um, Henrietta Cullinan, who's at the back, uh, who also worked with us on this, and uh, Vaughan Jones, who's gone now, one of uh, our board of directors, who's been very supportive towards it. But um, in particular, that the next event here is not in this series, but it's another event we're very pleased to be promoting. It's called Reclaiming Remembrance, and Virginia uh, Moffat here will be uh, talking about that theme of reclaiming remembrance. It's work that Ecclesia has done over many years. We published a report, first of all, in 2009 called Reimagining Remembrance, which has gone through various incarnations and has tried to influence the idea of the powerful idea of remembrance as being not just a way of of looking at war that often is at risk of sanctifying it, but looking at how we move from war to peace. And Virginia uh, has a book uh, which is being supported uh, through crowdfunding at the moment called Echo Hall, which talks about women's experiences across history as part of that. Um, so that's, uh, again, um, 6.45 here on the 10th of November. There are leaflets on the seat, and they'll also be on the Ecclesia website. And just to say, in terms of staying in touch with us, there's the sign-up sheet at the back if you want to, or Ecclesia, uh, if you look us up, obviously we have our website, we have our Facebook page, our Twitter feed, do stay in touch with us and we'll keep you in touch if you want particularly uh, with events. And then I think the last thing I'm going to say is, again, what would a church meeting be without collection plates at the back? And so there are pet plates out there. This series of events has been supported um, through uh, the, the fund we heard about earlier, created by a legacy. Um, but neither we nor Bloomsbury are rich people, and we have a lot of work to support, and we really do appreciate any support that you can give us in that. I think that's probably all. Someone will remind me if I've forgotten to say anything else. Thank, thank you. Thank you.